Welcome, this is Tapping into Creativity, a podcast in which we explore the magic that happens when creativity, art and education meet. We are a group of professionals and pioneers from Ireland, Greece, Serbia, Austria and the Netherlands working together. By sharing stories, we hope to learn about successful practices throughout Europe and inspire you with the lessons learned. I am Manja Eland and I am Linda Rosink. We We are are your hosts. hosts. Hi Linda. Who's our guest of today? Today we're going to listen to the interview with Edwin van Meerkerk. He is a professor at Radboud University, where he works in the Department of Modern Languages and Cultures. I specifically talked to him about the research he is doing at the moment about art education and the cooperation between teachers and artists. In the Netherlands, we have a program which is called, in Dutch, Cultuur Educatie met Kwaliteit. For English listeners, Cultural Education with Quality. And in this program, which has been running since 2013, schools and cultural organizations have been working together closely. And he has published in 2021 a lexicon for the cooperation between a teacher and an artist. And I was just really curious about uh, why he published the lexicon, but also what, of course, came out of his research. And can you give us a little bit of a peek of something that came out of this research that you're taking with you? Well, first of all, he explained the value of qualitative research Mm -hmm. instead of quantitative research, because he feels that when you talk about arts and education, it's not about numbers. It's more about the personal experience. So he has this really nice anecdote about the sparkle in the eyes of children that he heard about from one of the teachers that made her, of course, uh, give also sparkles in the eyes. And he says, when you do qualitative research, you get more input on the personal motivation and the nuance in the situation. So that was one thing that I uh, really enjoyed. We also discussed a little bit about how classrooms are normative, Mm -hmm. the way a classroom is set up, the tables and the chairs. Before anybody is in the classroom, they put down a standard of what is expected from the children and also what is not expected. So that was a part of the discussion I really liked. And of course, when doing research, he had the quote, are we measuring what we value or do we value what we measure? Ah, good one. Which is about the tension between the measuring of talents and progress in students. So I think that's the main topics. And I think the last thing that I can give away as a teaser is how he talks about in arts education, which of course is a huge mental note to (laughs) self. Uh, In arts education, we have a really high standard of what we aim to achieve with our uh, projects. Mm A lot of people working in arts education, they want to change something about the society and they want to do that through changing education. But can art also be because of the arts? That's a good question to linger with for a little while. (laughs) I'm so curious. Looking forward to this episode. Uh, Thank you for your introduction. Let's dive in.
Today I am joined by Edwin van Meerkerk. Hello Edwin, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm Edwin van Meerkerk. I work at uh, Radboud University in uh, Nijmegen, the Netherlands, as an associate professor in uh, the Department of Cultural Studies, where I work on arts education and cultural policy mainly. And for one day a week, I'm an endowed professor at Artes University of the Arts, where I'm working on a project uh, in which we bring together Radboud University and Artes with change makers from the global south. That's a project we do together with Oxfam, where we want to bring in, say, the great societal challenges of today uh, that you can summarize in the Sustainable Development Goals. And we will bring these mm-hmm. uh, change makers, always working on uh, a form of narrative change makers, so changing the frame in which societal problems pose themselves to, to people, we will bring them into our classrooms in uh, next semester. That sounds very interesting. And are the students all from the South or do you invite the change makers for Dutch students? We're inviting the change makers to our students here. Okay. okay. Uh, and these students may be from an international background, mm-hmm. um, but they're, they're based at Artes and Radboud. That's such a nice collaboration, I can imagine. Yeah. Very exciting. Is this the first uh, year that it's happening? Yeah, it's the first. And um, we're, we're still in the process of getting to know our um, digital residents because it's, it's a, we call it a residency, but it's, it's all online. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, tomorrow we're having our first get together with a long list of people who have applied. We had over a hundred applications worldwide and we're trying to figure out uh, where the best matches are and then We'll start working towards uh, creating uh, an online learning environment. That sounds amazing. I wish I was a student again. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I've invited you for our podcast, Stepping into Creativity, is because of the research you have done together with Culture Oost, which is the resulted in the lexicon that was uh, written by you. Can you tell our listeners something about this project, the research, uh, and how it started? Yeah, glad to do that. Um, I've been working with uh, Culture Oost for over eight years now, and it's all got to do with a funding project by the Dutch government, um, which seeks to improve the quality of arts education in mainly elementary schools. And that, that is because, uh, like in, in many, if not most other countries, uh, there are hardly any internal uh, arts educators, arts teachers in elementary schools. They have to be hired by the schools from, say, a local music school or a center for the arts or um, maybe they're they're privately employed. And that didn't always work as it should. So there's a subsidy scheme uh, to increase the presence of the arts in uh, in elementary schools. And in order to find out what was actually happening when these arts teachers came into uh, the schools, uh, Culture Oost asked me to do a, a research Uh, flanking the project and the project runs in cycles of four years Mm -hmm. and after the the last four years which ended in in 2020 I summarized the research of the previous years uh, in a a sort of a dictionary to illustrate uh, the way the arts teachers and the generalist teachers in the elementary schools talk to each other because in the first four years I had noticed that when interviewing them separately they were using the same words but you could sort of feel that they actually meant something different. And I think that is important to understand if you want to improve this collaboration and and the the mutual understanding of what it is an arts teacher thinks he or she is 
coming to do in school and for the art teacher to realize that the school has other ideas when you and it's it's about simple words like like what do you mean when you talk about learning or, or interaction or how do you define a good class and these are notions that that come so naturally to someone who's used to teaching whether as an arts teacher or a generalist teacher uh, that people don't think about why they interpret words the way they do, because that, w- that will be a tiring effort. If you constantly think about your everyday work, which is teaching, you have to think about what am I actually doing when I teach? But the moment you bring in someone from the outside, it becomes very important to, to realize that they may at certain times interpret your vocabulary. Yes, that's actually a question I wanted to ask in the book. I have read one sentence that triggered me a little bit. And the sentence is, the image that emerged from the interviews is not one of big misunderstandings. And of course, by saying it was not one, it made me suspect that you expected it to be one an image of uh, Mm -hmm. big misunderstandings. And I guess that's the question. You did expect this. Why? <laughs> uh, because of some things that, uh, especially arts teachers uh, in, in the previous four years, said to me in interviews where they described uh, their partners in schools as people who actually meant different things when they spoke about teaching and learning and interaction with the children. But hopefully this is an indication that uh, the entire subsidy program is, is working, that the interaction improves and that they start understanding each other better. If I look back at the, the late, latest interviews we had and think back eight years ago when I was first starting this project, talking to people in schools, I was just in an orientation phase just to see what the situation really was. And from both sides, there were complaints, basically, from the schools that the arts teacher would just drive by with a suitcase full of music instruments and open the suitcase and distribute the instruments, make the children play and then leave again without actually thinking about which school, which children they were teaching. And then the arts teacher would say, yeah, I come in and I'm fully prepared and I'm really, really thought about what I'm going to do. And the class teacher is already gone. (laughs) <laughs> reviewing essays <laughs> in another room because they don't care. And apparently that has improved. Uh, they know why the other comes. Uh, they know what, what is expected. At least uh, they know better. And that goes for, for the schools that have been in the project for four to eight years, obviously. Mm-hmm. Of course, because it's a project for international listeners that uh, not all schools in the Netherlands are involved in. And I think from this project being a part of ITEPD, also I've realized that in other countries, there's a lot more centralized activity from government dictating the curriculum. And that's different, I guess, in the Netherlands. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We have a very strongly decentralized curriculum. There's a legal freedom of schools to determine what they teach and how they teach it, as long as they meet the final requirements at the end of the school, which is the total opposite to uh, a country like France, for instance, which has a a nationally prescribed curriculum for every day, every hour of the week, um, for every child on every age. Yes, I found that difference uh, in our project already. So I've been curious, how did you conduct this research? How did you end up with all the interviews? How did you select schools? We start, started talking with Culturaos, uh, the, the intermediary organization who connects the schools and the, and the art teachers 
mm-hmm. uh, to think about the variation of the schools that will be part of the research because this intermediary organization is connected to the province of Gelderland, which is one of the 12 provinces of, uh, of the Netherlands. So it's quite a large province, both geographically and in, in terms of uh, the number of inhabitants. And it's a very differentiated province. So there are larger cities that are in the, the top 10 of, uh, of the Netherlands. And there are loads of rural towns and villages that have a completely different cultural infrastructure, a social background of students and, uh, and parents. Um, and we want to have um, different angles, different elements uh, different contexts in the research to have a broad uh, view as, as, as possible. And then we contacted the schools and, and that went really smoothly. They all were really eager to, to participate, to, to learn from the research. Okay. And what did you do in schools when you were there? Um, to be precise, I, I did it with, with a student assistant. She conducted uh, most of the interviews. Mm-hmm. I did some and she did a lot, and then I transcribed and, and encoded uh, uh, all the interviews. And we had three interview sessions per school. The first was uh, individual interviews, one with the elementary teacher and one with the arts teacher about uh, their background, who they were. And then halfway through the year, we had a, an interview with the two of them together to create a dialogue, to hear what they told about the collaboration. And then at the end of the year, there were two individual interviews again with the elementary teacher and the arts teacher looking back on the collaboration, also looking back on the uh, on the double interview to see whether they had been surprised by what the other had said. So there were, um, yeah, per school, and we had, from the top of my head, eight schools participating. So 16 people involved with five interviews per school. It was over 24 hours of audio, at least, so... A lot of material, a lot of detail, because what I wanted to do, and that is... That's a lot to go through. It's the kind of research I like, obviously, I like doing, uh, but I also think that it's it's, it's an important Mm -hmm. part of research that is sometimes overlooked because it doesn't result in so-called hard facts. It doesn't result in statistically relevant, significant numbers. Uh, But what it does, if you use interviews or uh, what I also do in in some research is uh, diaries or logs uh, that people keep, it comes really close to who these people are and it comes really close to what they're actually doing when they're doing. And I think that is very significant to understand uh, the practice of this collaboration, of this interaction, of what happens to children. If you talk to, to, an, to an arts teacher, for instance, when they come into a school and they'll come in, in different schools with different school cultures, different types of children with parents who, in some cases, really encourage them to participate in the arts, to play an instrument, for instance, or to, to paint or to do uh, drama. And in other schools, the parents are, are, say, the greatest obstacle to successful arts education because they don't care and, and they actually they think there are more important things in the world than, uh, than the arts. And when you ask for one such art teacher, I, I did it a couple of years back with a music teacher. Um, what are you looking for? What, what is, when is it successful? When are you satisfied? And, and could you grade a class or a pupil? And he said, well, I, I can't grade what I'm doing because I'm, I'm only there for one or two hours per week. So I don't really get to know uh, the children. And every school is different and I have to adapt. So each, each lesson is different. And it also depends on the time of year, the time of day. But there's always this one moment. When I look into the classroom, he said, 
and there's this child with a sparkle in the eye. And I know I've done it. It's worked. Something has happened. Something has put, been put into motion. And I'm happy when that happens. And, and then I hope it happens again to more children. But th that's the core of what I'm looking for. Um, and I thought that that was really, really well put. Um, and it also mm -hmm. encouraged me to pursue this path of, of looking for the individual perspective, looking for the smaller, minute details that will never show up in a survey, but that are important to the success and the effects of art education. Yes, that's very interesting that you uh, spoke about this because I had a question for you. Because you are a researcher and I've spoken to people from Ireland and Greece already and they all, I think it was four or five of them, they all spoke about the magical open space that happens when teachers and artists come together. And I was wondering, is this something that you have seen in your research? And if so, how would you give words to that? Because it's so difficult. Yeah, it's, it's really, really very difficult. But it's it's extremely important. I'm glad that uh, these colleagues, whom I probably shouldn't even know, are on the same page as, as I am. Uh, the fact that you call it an open space it, is very important, I think. And it's 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 a space on, on several levels. It's, it's a mental space, what you're looking for. And I think what you're looking for in, gen in education in general is an open space on, on this mental level, which means... It is related to uh, what is now being debated, uh, at least in higher education, uh, safe spaces. Um, uh, it, it's, it's about feeling free to express your thoughts, to pursue ideas, feeling free to make mistakes, feeling free to be yourself in what you're doing, um, to, to say to your teacher that you do or do not like what you're doing. And that is uh, say this mental space that will open up to real learning, because when you learn something, you're taking a step towards something that you could not do beforehand. And that is scary. Think of things that you can't do. You can't fly, for instance. Uh, if someone asks, invites you to, oh, okay, I'll teach you how to fly, now jump off this building, you won't do it. Mm -hmm. And that's a big thing. But in the smaller things, there's always something scary in what is strange. So you have to have a space in which you are free to say that, that you're scared, but also a space in which you know uh, that it's okay to try. And that, that's, say, the, the mental space. And on the other hand, you've, you've got the physical space. And there you see that, especially the arts teachers, uh, there, there's a big difference there. The way people talk about spaces, uh, they sometimes feel restricted by the, say, the, the normative space uh, in, in the physical sense of the school they're entering, which begins with the chairs and tables that are lined up. And if you're a dance teacher or a drama teacher, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And it's also a problem you can overcome um, because you can use these in your dancing, in your movements. They're props to a certain extent, but you also know that the chairs are there because the children are supposed to sit at them yes. and to keep sitting at them. And if, when you talk to the generalist elementary school teachers, they frequently uh, come to the question of, uh, the say, the ordering of the space, the neatness of the classroom. They really want the classroom at the end of each lesson, which always lasts <laughs> 45 minutes, maybe 50, uh, but not 30 because it feels good. It has to be neat. So the paint has to be gone. The clay has to be gone. The chairs have to be in rows again or in groups. And that's what's something that, that our teachers experience as a, as a problem, as, as a challenge, at least, to 
uh, successful education. But I also think that, again, this is a wider problem of education because spaces are, in whichever way uh, you organize them, normative. They show you what the rules are. And to give one example, um, in a previous collaborative project with Artez, which was called Create Space, we hired a space outside of both campuses (laughs) because we did not want one group to feel uh, the guest and the other one to feel the host. They had to be equals on every level. And this was a former office building. So we got in some some secondhand furniture and uh, we said to the uh, students, well, this is your room now. For the next semester, this is yours. You can come and go as you please. You can do with it what you want. This is your learning space. You can change it. You can add things. But this is where it happens. And we were hoping that something would happen, but it amazed everyone involved how much that triggered the eagerness from the students to actually own the place and to really take the lead in their own learning process, simply because it wasn't a classroom. That's amazing. It wasn't dictated how to behave. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Those were beautiful words for the question I asked. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's this other word that I think in the Netherlands at least obviously came up in this uh, book that you've written. And that's in Dutch, passend onderwijs. And I've learned, uh, I've, I tried to translate it, and I think it's in English should be tailored education. And it's a Dutch policy term about how standard education in the Netherlands and primary schools should make space for children with all sorts of needs. I guess that's a good summarization. Um, why do you think this word came up so much in your interviews and how does it influence arts education? Yeah, it came up a lot, especially in the interviews with the uh, journalist teachers, Mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are confronted daily with, say, this change in policy that um, there are there is there still are separate uh, special needs schools Mm -hmm. uh, in elementary and secondary education as well. But government has decided that many of the children who used to be in special needs schools uh, should be in regular schools because they have to be integrated in society. They're not children who want to put away. So that's a a laudable policy, I would say. Uh, The problem is that classes are large, up to 30 children in one class, and the generalist teacher has to teach each and every one of them. And the philosophy behind this tailored education initiative is that every single child has to be given their own special needs education, in a sense. At the same time, a lot of parents... Um, of, say, non-special needs children. I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's a horrible way of addressing it, but uh, a lot of, there are a lot of parents who think their child is uh, supremely gifted at uh, whatever it is that they can be gifted at, and they demand also a special treatment, because otherwise they would be bored or it would hinder their uh, academic careers later on, uh, which leaves the elementary school teacher with children with ADHD, children with ASS, and children with higher intelligence than than average. um, Gifted children, as they say. Yeah. And and that that was a a really great concern. And that resulted in uh, the fact, and and I have to stress that the the, the elementary teachers that we interviewed uh, were the ones who had uh, agreed on this collaboration with the art teachers. They really want to... introduce the arts to their children to be it an integral part of the education. But at the same time, even they said this 
is one extra thing that we have to do in the short time that we have, given the great variety of children that we have to help every day. Whereas at the end of the day, or at the end of the, the school, but regularly throughout the entire school career, the children will be tested in standardized tests on the triple R, reading, writing, arithmetic, or for, for, for the Americans among the audience, the STEM subjects. It's always the math and the languages that are being tested and evaluated. So they have to bring them to a certain level on these subjects. And then we ask them, oh, please integrate the arts as well. And, and that really is a struggle for them. So how do I find time? Uh, will it not hurt all the other tasks I have? And an extra thing to that is the children with uh, special needs sometimes have difficulties with the way the arts teacher teaches because it's it's different it's a change it is it makes it makes noise <laughs> for example <laughs> whereas say a, a lot of uh, say traditional schooling is a very quiet type of schooling very structured the teacher talks the children listen the children write uh, the children make sums um, uh, but they don't talk and then suddenly they have to stand up and sing a song yes and that's that causes confusion so the tension between traditional education and art education becomes more visible when the teachers are asked to attend to all the kinds of, say, learning challenges that their 30 children are yes. confronted with. Yes, I recognize that from our own practice, that when in the arts you want to go forth and give children all the space and not too much structure in the lessons, which for some people or some children might just precisely be the problem that they need the structure and they need to know where they are going. So there's another question I had wanted to ask. One of the words is minister. (laughs) And the booklet is about arts and education. So can you tell me what would be your message to the minister after this research? That's a a tricky question because that, that was the final question we asked in the final interview. And that's why it became a topic in the, uh, in the publication afterwards. We asked the teachers, both the art teachers and the regular teachers, uh, what would you say to the minister if you um, could give her a word of advice? And, and, and it really triggered a lot of ideas on education, on the school, uh, which is really inspirational to hear in, in all of those interviews. I think I would want to tell um, the minister in the Netherlands, this, uh, this differs per country as well, but we have a Ministry of Education and Culture. These are not two separate ministries. They used to be uh, way back when, but now there's one minister for both education and uh, and culture. But these are different departments of the same ministry. And arts education is funded by the arts department, the culture department, whereas the schools are funded by the education department. And what you see in, say, the entire mega infrastructure of, of education uh, that we have, which ends up in a classroom, but there's a lot of organization above and beyond that, that the mere fact that art education comes from a different department within the ministry has significant effects over the entire organizational structure. And once you would say, okay, if we want, and I think politics wants, the minister wants, art education to be an integral part of education for every child in the Netherlands. 
If that's your position, then you should fund arts education from the education budget, not from the arts budget. It has to be part of uh, say the, the entire task you set the schools. So and I think that that's, that's the first step. If you would do that, you would leave it at that. You run the risk that some schools will say, okay, we get extra budget, but we're still free to say how we teach and what we teach. So the extra budget is very welcome. We hire an extra math teacher, for instance, and you would want to prevent that. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that is being funded from the culture department now is exactly to prevent that from happening. Um, if you want to draw a consequence out of saying, okay, we're increasing the budget because we want to want arts education to be an integral part of the educational system, and you do not want to fundamentally change the system because that would cause chaos, and I, I doubt whether that would result in anything uh, significantly better than what we have today, you would have to make it an integral part of the standardized testing as well. Because if it's tested, it exists. And now it isn't tested. Then I would say, well, make a committee uh, from people who know uh, what to do to, to think about the testing, because you wouldn't want to end up with having a finalized uh, standardized test in which you have to sum up the names of the five most famous European composers or whatever. That's not what it's about. It's about our other things. But once it's tested, it will be visible yeah, and the, the impetus will be for schools that they have to start early. Yes. But then again, testing, like if, if I hear the word testing, I'm thinking maybe grading or evaluating the work or the growth is very difficult in primary schools, I guess, to have it tested. And I think back on what you were speaking about in how you feel the re the way you did your research is undervaluated because it doesn't give you hard numbers. Yep. So how would you think <laughs> this testing should happen without going to the hard numbers? Yeah, well, I did not use the word grading because that would mean numbers. Mm-hmm. The thing is, if you think about... This is something that I borrow from Gerd Pista, the, the educational philosopher. Uh, and he says, are, are we measuring what we value or are we valuing what we measure? And we're doing the latter because there are certain things that we, we can easily measure. Mm -hmm. Can you make a beautiful equation with math? Is your spelling okay? These are easily gradable things yes. in a sense. And that is why we value them. And he says, we do it, should do it the other way. Think about what we find valuable and then think, how can we evaluate that somewhere in school? So the question actually is, what is so valuable about art education in schools? Uh, and once we can f define that, I think we can also uh, start thinking about what kind of evaluation or testing we need. And I think the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the value of art education in education is that it is a process oriented subject. It is about the creation. It is about understanding what you're doing. It involves meta-learning, knowing what you're doing when you're doing. It does not, in nearly all cases, involve assigning an objective quality to the final project product, because there's, there's no such thing as a, say, a good play by 11-year-olds that you can strictly define as different from a good play performed by 8-year-olds. That there's no such thing. What you can say is that the children have played drama, <laughs> have engaged themselves in acting, and they've done that well as the children they are. And that is 
it's about the rehearsals. It's not about the performance if you're talking about theater. And the same goes for music and, and, and dance and, and visual arts. So that means our evaluation is a formative way of testing, not a summative way of testing. Secondly, I think it is also something that has to involve the children themselves because it's a, it's a very personal type of development. So I would expect to see some forms of reflection on themselves, but also on their interaction with others because art education is also about being in the world. It, it's a, a sort of an existentialist uh, subject in schools, if you like. Uh, so it's also about how have you interacted and how do you look back on the way you interacted with the others. Yeah. I'm thinking of a, of a project I heard about from a couple of years back, which was not about primary schools, but about secondary schools, where children had to make a piece of art, visual art, but they only had limited time and then they had to move on to the next room. And in that room, another group of their, their own school had started making something. And what they did, they destroyed it because they hated it. And then they uh, started rebuilding something which was uh, worse than they had in their first room. And after a short time, they had to move to, move to the third room. And they discovered that the same thing had happened there. The previous group had destroyed it and made something which was not good. And then they realized that their first work had been destroyed as well. Must have been. So from then on, they started building and started looking. What have they done? What were their intentions? How can we uh, elaborate on that? How can we make it better? How can, what can we, as our group, contribute to what they have done? And at the end of the day, they made beautiful pieces of art. And, and I've over, over remembered the example because it's exactly about what it should be about. It's about realizing the process you're in. It's about thinking about your own contribution, but it's also about the other. What are they doing? What were their intentions? So I think the evaluation would be along those kinds of lines, about processes, about reflection, and about interaction. That's, that's a great example. My guess is that if everybody would look at each other's work, whether it's art or whatever, <laughs> the world would be such a happier place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the pitfalls of art education. I talked about the education in general before. Now you're saying, well, if we do this in all subjects, the world would be a better place. When people start talking about art education, we aim high. And sometimes I feel that we're aiming too high. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of discussions on good art education in schools ends with reforming the entire educational system. And the next risk is that we're actually reforming the entire educational system based on the image of art in order to make a better world, um, which is a, a great ideal, but it's utopian. It is. Um, so we have to be satisfied with little steps. Yes. And we also have to be aware that in these kinds of processes, what we're doing is actually thinking about what would be ideal without being so naive as to think that we could actually achieve that. So it's, it's aiming for the impossible in a sense. And, and I think once you realize that, you can go ahead and, and say aiming for the impossible educational system, which is okay. Then the art will be a great addition to any school because it is a, a form of reflection on what the entire school as a system is doing without pretending to actually overthrow everything. Of course, because I do think that's a lot of people who work from with the arts in schools are idealists and uh, are romantics yeah 
And it's precisely the word that was used by one of the other interviewees that they started from a romantic perspective that in changing the world. Yeah, I've heard that. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I can rest better now. Now I know that I don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) So you had three main points that you've put central into your book, which are the learning process, the organization and how we view the role of arts. How can you tell me the perspective of a teacher and an artist is different in the way we uh, see the role of the arts? The simple answer is that the teacher has a task to bring his or her children, all of them, as individuals and as a group, uh, safely to the end of the road, in a sense. And the arts are just one little thing among the many things that are involved in this entire teaching process. And that's how they've been taught themselves in their own teacher training. That's how they're evaluated by their organization. That's how they're viewed by society. So however important they may think the arts are, they always realize that there are more things that are not the arts that are important in their work. So they have to devote attention to that first and foremost. And that influences the way they organize their work, influences the way they teach. One of the things that that also came up in this research project was, uh, say, the the, the class schedule, the weekly and daily schedule of when is which subject taught. They have to think about how much time they should allot for language, for math, for uh, gymnastics, and for the arts, uh, and for history, and for geography, and, and, and. Because if they just go ahead and follow their feeling, they might miss out certain things that they are not allowed to miss, which creates an environment in many, not all, but in many schools where over the years, the schedule, the roster, has become the most important thing of all, more important than the subjects that are in it. And if, if you ask the arts teachers about uh, their experience of schools, they often come up with this problem. Why do they work so, so so schedule that they want to have the arts brought up in class because this is the moment, because something is, say, in the air, if only for five minutes, but it can't happen because the arts are in our uh, roster for Tuesday mornings at 10.30, even if the class isn't ready, because it has to be, because it's there, and after an hour, they have to dress for gymnastics, or there is a test for math, or they, whatever. So this... The background of both, the arts teacher, is taught in a totally different way. (laughs) Nearly all of them have been trained as arts teachers, which in the Netherlands, is this teacher training is part of art schools. It's not part of educational schools. Do you mean the arts teachers training? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that has a strong impact on the way arts teachers view their work. They've not been trained in a school for teacher education alongside other teachers that were trained for history or biology or math. They're not part of that group. They're part of another group. They're part of a group of which some choose the arts to become an artist and some choose the arts to become an art teacher. But the main sum is art, not teacher. And that means that their ultimate purpose is about art. It's about making art. It's about a way of being also. So it's a very much a question of professional identity, two different professional identities that meet when they start collaborating. One is all about, say, the entire learning process, 
which is about child psychology, about uh, learning problems, about learning lines throughout the school. It's about testing. It's about schedules, etc., etc. And the other is about creating, about finding your voice. And with the latter perspective, a traditional view of the school as an organization and the role of arts in it is fundamentally different. I don't think we need to solve that, but I do think that we have to uh, make sure that before we start a process of arts integration in whichever school you want to integrate it in, to start a dialogue about what it is we're talking about when we're talking about arts education, to know from each other where we stand and which organization and worldview we're in, what our identity is before we start teaching it. I've never thought it the way you've stated it, but I guess you're right. You also stated that teachers and artists, and I've experienced this being an artist sometimes in schools, that there's a whole different view on safety. Yeah. Can you tell me what you found and what the difference is? Yeah. Um, and so one of the, one of the most interesting topics uh, when talking to arts teachers because their idea on safety in arts education is a safety that allows for risk because you need to take chances. You need to experiment. You need to see whether uh, a movement will work in your own choreography. Even if you're a six-year-old, when your arts teacher is a dance teacher and they ask you to, to, to make choreography, there has to be the safety to do something that fails, that doesn't come across to your audience. And then you can try again. So safety for arts teachers is about taking risks because that's ultimately what you would want to do. And that has to do with this background in arts academies about making, because making is about mistaking in in a sense. Whereas for for, uh, the generalist teachers, the safety is a form of risk avoidance because they constantly think of time. There's always too little time to do what they feel they have to do. Whether it is actually what they have to do is another question, but they feel they have to do a lot in too little time. Um, So making mistakes is out of the question because there's no time for that. And safety for them is about the children feeling rewarded, um, being recognized for the things they do. And they're in a system in which all mistakes cause you great, simply. So everything you do well gives you a higher grade and in the system as, as we have it here and it's it's quite similar in many other countries from a very very early age on even with our say freedom of curriculum that we have uh, in the Netherlands there are standardized tests from the end of kindergarten up until when they're 18 and each of these tests is a step on a way that leads towards a final qualification and The culmination of all these tests, which start with the reading levels of six-year-olds and end with exams that give you access to universities or no, is rewarded with a grade where good is upward and not good is downward, in a sense. So making mistakes there is, say, taking the wrong turn, which is a problem in the entire educational system because the majority of children do not end up at universities, and they feel they've constantly taken the wrong turn. They're wrong people, in a sense. And that's that's horrible that we do that. Yes, it's very sad. 
And no one does it consciously. No one says, oh, you've got a, a C uh, if you grade uh, like an American or, or a six in the Netherlands. You're a bad person. Not at all. That's not what your teacher means when they give you a six or a five. That can be an encouragement. You're almost there. Just one point higher. You'll pass this time. Uh, but they want them all to pass. They don't want them to fail. And the arts teacher wants them to fail because they know that from failing, there's learning. You will learn. It makes you better. Yes, that's the basics, I think, uh, <laughs> of education and the difference. It saddens me because it really does happen like that. At the moment, we have interns and they are in MBO colleges, which is practical learning. And one of them just recently told me he was ashamed that he was. And it just kills me. Yeah. Like, why? Come on. We need everybody yeah. in every kind of field. And uh, what would we do with a world full of professors and no electricians? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is there anything you want to talk about that didn't come up before? Well, one thing that fascinated me throughout the entire interview that we, this is about creativity. We didn't really mention. No. <laughs> Whereas we're circling around it without actually trying to, to, to sort of define it. I don't think we can. So, so don't ask me to define it because I can't. But it's, it's, it's interesting. Just struck me. I don't know whether it's a conscious decision. but No, I don't think it is. But I'm curious now because, of course, it, everything we talk about is about creativity. <laughs> but uh, looking at the quotes that you have in your book, creativity is not there either. Uh, uh. <laughs> No, it's because they hardly mentioned it. And that is, again, because my main research question is how does the collaboration work? Of course, it's about the partnership. Uh, there's no creativity in that collaboration, not necessarily at least. But in the end, of course, it, it's about people wanting to introduce creativity as a part of education in, in, in general and thinking mm -hmm. that by bringing in the arts, they would also bring in creativity, which is not necessarily the case. It's not always the case. No. <laughs> no. 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 You can ask the, the children to learn to play the flute. And if they practice a lot, then they can. They can be very technical. But they're, they're not creative. No, no that's true. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that because yeah. it, I agree with you entirely. And maybe it's the Dutch word beroepsdeformatie. Professional deformation, yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's so inherent that like the fish who swims in the water yeah. cannot see the water. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for the time. We will share information about you and your work in the show notes. I was wondering, as a last question, is uh, any part of this book translated into English for our international listeners? Not yet. What, what I'm working on are that they're academic papers for journals. So they will be in English. Mm -hmm. But, well, <laughs> the problem of academia is that we write articles for journals that we only read ourselves. So yeah, that, that, that's a challenge to take up uh, someday when I've got more time too. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. Time is of the essence. Yeah. If you have any links to those kind of journals, I'm sure there are researchers listening and people who like to read those and understand them. So thank you. You're welcome. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Tapping into Creativity. In our show notes, you can find more information about our guests and the subjects that were discussed in this interview. If you liked what you heard, 
You can help us reach many more listeners by hitting the subscribe button, giving us a five-star review, and sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Tapping into creativity is part of ITAPPD, which is short for International Teacher-Artist Partnership, Professional Development. We are currently building a model and training about partnership between teachers and artists in education. ITAPPD facilitates a place and time where we can jointly develop our understanding, expertise and creativity on working with young people. We explore and play with the different perspectives teachers and artists have on behavior, development and language. If you want to know more about our project, please visit us on any social platform as i-tap-pd. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Erasmus Plus Strategic Partnership Program. Partners in ITAPPD are the Education Center in Tralee, Center za Dramu u Edukaciji i Umetnosti, CEDEUM, Panelinio Dictio ja to Theatro Stin Ekpedevs, Stichting Copa, Kunsteducatie. We were your hosts, Linda and Manja, from Stichting Copa in the Netherlands. Audio editing was done by Yelda Shahidi. Hope you tap in with us again. Have a nice day.